0: You are listening to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. Your Daily Drive is where we put our resources in an audio format so you can listen to it on the go. If you want to read our podcast, you can do that. You have both options, and so you can read them on our website, rickthomas.net, or you can just listen here. Either one is perfect for us. You can find all of our podcasts on different platforms. Pick the one that you like. You can listen on iTunes, which most people do. Also, if you have the SoundCloud app and like listening to SoundCloud, you can get our podcast there. We're on Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Tuned In Radio, Podbeam. And, of course, you can listen right from our website. The title of this podcast and the accompanying article on the website is The Joy-Depleting Problem of Being Reared a Christian. I want to talk about this problem of, well, it's really a second-generation Christian problem. And what I mean by second generation or third or fourth generation for that matter, but it's those children that are reared in a Christian home. I have run into this often where many of these believers do not have joy in God. Many of them do not experience the fullest expressions of what it means to be gospel-centered. Part of the problem is, is that we don't like thinking about our awfulness because we resist the biblical declaration that we are rotten to the core. Now I know that sounds harsh and some people say Rick you share truth bombs. I read that read that recently on a comment that someone made. In fact, this lady said, some of you might not like him because he drops truth bombs. I thought about that statement and I wondered how Jesus would fit into our culture today. Jesus was always cutting against the grain of our proud hearts by some of the things that he said to us. In fact, I would encourage you to read Matthew 23, and it's some of the most powerful and direct language that Jesus spoke to any group of people. But he did this all the time, whether it was to or about his relatives or or the Pharisees. But then the Bible's declaration, as far as our awfulness is concerned, well, it's not just what Jesus said Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's the way Isaiah talked about it. And the truth is, and we have drifted so far from the biblical declarations of our reality, who we are apart from the grace of God That when people start talking about who we are apart from the grace of God, it does sound harsh, blunt, truth bombs, unkind, because our language and our opinions of ourselves have softened so much. And that's why I said that we resist the biblical declaration that we are rotten to the core. And when I say that, I'm basically paraphrasing Isaiah when he says that we are polluted. We have become unclean. Only a person with a high view of himself would get hung up on, on his fallenness, on this idea of total depravity. But here's the irony. It is the acceptance of your wickedness that releases the fullest expressions of the gospel in you. The power of the gospel is released in you, and the freedom that you have because of this gospel power comes when you accept the reality, the fullest reality of who you are. I want to talk about that because especially for those Christians or young people who haven't experienced a lot, they haven't done a lot of bad things and and because of that, and that's why I titled the podcast, The Joy Depleting Problem of Being Reared a Christian. Now, let me caveat this. <laughs> I pray to God that everybody could be reared as a Christian or reared in a Christian home to be reared by Christians. I wish that was my experience. I would not want you to have my experience of being reared in an abusive home, an alcoholic home. A whoremongering home, an angry home, a volatile home. I would not want you to have my kind of home the way that I was raised. But there is a backside liability to being reared a Christian, and you need or being reared in a Christian home, and you need to know this. A few weeks ago, I was talking with a humble, transparent young man who was gathered with a group of 20 somethings to worship God. I was encouraged that so many college and career kids would come together to adore the Lord. I was intrigued by their stories and and why, in light of our world's obsession with self-indulgence, that these young people wanted to learn more about God. It was a positive experience. It was an amazing experience that you can find a group of young people, 20-somethings, An amazingly indulgent culture, and here's a bunch of these people gathered together, and they wanted to worship God. They learned more about him. I began asking them a few questions, like if they'd ever smoked weed, had sex, and a few other lifestyle sins that we're very, and I would say, all too familiar with. And so I began asking them about these things, and some of them had never indulged in those specific sins, praise God. Others were humble and honest about their past lifestyle, and they had indulged in those sins, some of those sins, but they regained their sanity, and they knew the foolishness of their choices, which is why they decided that following Christ was a much better option. But there was one young man, that I was talking to who told me that one of the main reasons that he never smoked weed or did some of the more, I'm going to put this in quotation marks, heinous sins was because he saw what his peers were doing in school and he didn't want to be like them. It wasn't that temptations had never tempted him. Temptations did come. Temptations did tempt him but he chose not to participate. And he felt a sense of pride that he didn't do those things. And as we began to talk, and he was very honest with me, that the truth is he was motivated by his smug, albeit subtle, arrogance and self-righteousness that it had worked its way around his heart. He was proud of the fact that he wasn't like other People, In a twist of irony, he was similar to the Pharisee in the temple. In Luke 18, verse 11, specifically, he had become like a person that he would even disdain, an arrogant and self-righteous person. But that is what happened to him as he was looking down on a fellow sinner. My friend's blindness to his own personal blindness kept him from seeing the heinousness of, of who he really is apart from the grace of God. You know this passage of scripture, there are five verses here, Luke 18, 10 through 14. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing behind him, uh, beside himself, or standing by himself rather, prayed thus, God, quote, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, the Bible says. But he beat his breast, saying, quote, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus went on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As I turned his problem into my problem, the young man that I'm talking about, I took his problem of comparing himself to other people, which he admittedly, that's what he was doing. It, It began as this It was so subtle that he didn't even know, it was so imperceptible that he wasn't even in tune as to what it was doing to his own soul. He didn't want to do those heinous sins. He didn't want to be like them. And then after a while, he began to judge them because he wasn't like them. After a while, he became like the Pharisee in the temple. Well, I could have talked more about him and to him about what he was doing, but I wanted to to take his problem and turn it into my problem. I wanted to look at myself through the mirror of my life. How have I become like that myself? Because it's such a subtle problem, and that's what I hope you'll do in this podcast. I hope you'll begin to think about as you look toward other people. Can you, have you, are you secretly proud? Well, you can ask yourself some secretly proud questions. These secretly proud questions go unseen in self-righteous hearts. Let me ask you five of them, and, and please understand, this is not an exhaustive list of questions. You can come up with your own. I just hope that this will stir you up. I hope this will spur you on. I hope this will cause you to take a reflective look into your own soul. Your own mind has this subtle problem of of smug self-righteousness overtaking you as you compare yourself to other people? Here are five of those questions. Do you see yourself as the foremost sinner? You know where that's coming from. That's First 1 Timothy 1.15. That's how Paul saw himself. At the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy. He's finishing his last books. Timothy, Titus. And at the end of his life, he's experienced almost all that he's ever going to experience of God. He has, has just had an amazing life, and he's grown to the height of maturity that he can possibly grow in this life because he's about ready to make his exodus. So he's at the end of his life. And at the end of his life, he saw himself as the foremost sinner. It seems like that should be true with our experience. The closer we get to God, the more we should realize the disparity between ourselves and God. Now, that's not a woe is me, worm theology kind of worldview. It's actually a worldview that should propel you into profound gratitude for God's grace. Your gratitude is proportional to the amount of depravity that you understand yourself to be. So my question is, do you see yourself as the foremost sinner. Number 2, do you secretly compare yourself with others? Number 3, do you become impatient with people who have not conquered sins that you have already overcome? Another way of saying this is and this has happened this happens in counseling with counselors often, too often I think. Where things that we have overcome in 20 years of trying, 30 years of trying, We map over other people and expect them to overcome this in six months or six weeks or six days. And we don't realize how long it took us. My question is, do you become impatient with people who have yet to conquer sins that you have already overcome? Question number four, do you judge overweight people, large people, obese people? What about thin people? Do you compare yourself to them? And then number five, What do you think about groups who are of a different race, a different color, a different ethnic background than you are? I began to share some of these ideas with my young friend. He was amazingly humble as the light of the gospel was highlighting some of his longstanding shortcomings. You know, my wife, Lucia, has often shared her struggles with self-righteousness She was reared in a Christian home with a Christian family. She did not experience what I experienced. I shared shared some of those things earlier, being reared in an abusive home. The inculcation, inculcation of her spiritual challenges had blinded her to the point that she, she could not perceive the fullness and freedom that the gospel offers, these spiritual challenges. What I'm talking about is that she hadn't experienced much. She hasn't seen much of the dark side, and because of that, she had surrounded herself with a self-righteous attitude, and it blinded her to where she could not perceive the fullness, the freedom, the power that the gospel offers. She used to say it like this, She told me many times in the early part of our marriage, if I'd only killed someone, then I would be able to enjoy Christ more. Do you hear what she's saying? Her remorse was a half-hearted statement that spoke more to her frustrated relationship with God than her desire to kill someone. She didn't want to kill anyone, but her worldview, her theological worldview, was that if she had committed some heinous sin, then she would have a, a greater appreciation for the gospel. Because I live with her and sin against her more than anyone else, I was glad she was only semi serious. I didn't want her to kill me. But the truth is, her theology was weak. She used to say, quote, God got a good deal, end quote. When he saved her, now she knew she needed the Lord's salvation, because she stole a a pack of lifesavers when she was seven years old. But from her perspective, she had never committed enormous sins that made it so apparent that she needed salvation. This is why I titled the podcast "The Joy Depleting Problem of Being Reared as a Christian, Being Reared in a Christian Home." She hadn't done the bigger sins, and and so her relationship with God was truncated. I want to rear my children in an authentic Christian home. I hope that you can rear your children in an authentic Christian home. I want them to enjoy the benefits of growing up in a grace-filled, gospel-centered family environment. I'm not saying that we shouldn't rear our children Christian or within a Christian environment. I do want them to experience the sadness and emptiness, I or I do not want them, I'm sorry, I do not want them to experience the sadness and emptiness of premarital sex, marijuana, drunkenness, and all of these other big sins that we talk about. They don't have to, and I hope they don't, but I do want them to know how these privileges of grace, being reared in a Christian home is a privilege of grace, And I want them to know how these privileges of grace do not give them a better standing before God. The worst sinner and the best sinner are the same sinners, apart from the grace of God. If my children's theology is correct, they will see themselves as the worst sinners that they know. And because of this kind of biblical training, they will be some of the more grateful children in the body of Christ. Think about this for a moment. Do you really know anyone who is a worse sinner than you are? Be careful how you think about that. There are ditches here, and I understand the ditches. You can go, as I said earlier, into this woe is me, worm theology, and you just grovel all the time because you are an awful person. The other ditch is you can be the Pharisee in the temple Where you look down on other people, certain people. The truth is, I I do not know anyone who is worse than I am. I don't. I have been living with my frustratingly sinful self for more than a half century. I have faced and committed more of my fears and anxieties and double-mindedness and carelessness and inappropriateness and harshness, insecurity, anger, deceit, the hardness of heart, judgmentalism, angst, self-righteousness, ad nausea, than any person I know. And I know a lot of wicked stuff about a lot of people. I'm in the sin business. I see sinfulness every day. I listen to the heartbreaking stories of people all the time. I try to help fallen people walk through their sinfulness and the problems in their lives. Still yet, I have been living with me longer than I have known them. I know more about me than I know about you. I've seen more of my heinousness, committed more wickedness, and have received the Lord's forgiveness more than any person that I know. No matter how much sin I know about you, I know more about me. Now listen, I don't want you to go off the rails here. I don't want you to land in the ditch of self-pity because you are embracing this idea that you are an awful person In fact, I have an article here that's titled, Self-Pity is a Window into Your Soul. It's the last podcast that I did. It's linked inside this article, and you can read it. Don't fall into that ditch of self-pity. Woe is me, worm theology. But we have to embrace the reality of who we are. To say that I am the foremost sinner is not a negative statement if you know the gospel. Embracing your sinfulness is only horrible if you have no means of repentance. I don't want my children to get duped into thinking that living in a Christian home gives them a free pass to heaven. It is only by their unique personal confession of their unique individualized sins that they can enjoy the depths of forgiveness that God offers through his gospel. Compare themselves to others or not seeing the depth of their depravity would be death to their souls. For many years, they lived beside a crack addict. I'm talking about 30 feet from our house is her home a crack addict where the drug business has been amazingly busy for many years of their lives. But as we talk about our crack addict, next door neighbor who rips off homes in the neighborhood and, and business establishments in our community, I don't want my children to think that they are better than she is apart from the grace of God. They haven't done crack yet. As far as I know, they haven't ripped off any business establishments. As far as I know, they haven't ripped off any of the homes in our neighborhood. But they are no different than she is. To see themselves through the mirror of God's word leads to regeneration and daily forgiveness that incrementally releases them into gospel-empowered freedom in Christ that only the authentically guilty creatures can know. I would hate for them to think that there are other people in the world worse than they are, apart from the grace of God. That kind of perspective is the fertile ground upon which the seeds of self-righteousness grows. My friend that I was talking to in the 20-something college and career group, he began to see himself in a way that the Pharisee in the temple should have seen himself. And because of his new and improved, quote, fallen perspective, end quote, he is now positioned to experience God's grace in ways that that only the publicans of this world can enjoy. If you want to read this podcast, please go to our website, get the article, share it with your group, especially if you are a group of people who are reared in Christian homes, especially if you are a person who is tempted to compare yourself to other people, look down on other people who are different from you, the joy-depleting problem of being reared in a Christian home. Here's your call to action. I wanna share a few questions. I wanna ask you a few questions that I want you to think about, spend time thinking about. Take this article here and and share it with a friend let them let you both talk about this talk it through number one does your goodness keep you from god's grace that's what happened to lucia she was a good person she was a wonderful person reared in a christian home her worst crime in life as far as the sin list is concerned She stole a pack of Lifesavers as a seven-year-old punk kid. (laughs) Does your goodness keep you from God's grace? How does your lack of experience with bad things hinder you from having a profound affection for Christ? Question number two. Do you measure your problem with God by the sins that you commit and what I mean by problem with God, we all have a problem with God. The entire world has a problem with God. His wrath is upon all of us. All of us are bound for hell. We need Christ. That is a significant problem and it's the biggest problem that every person will experience. Do you measure your problem with God by the sins that you commit or? by the fact of your total depravity. If you measure your problem with God by your sin list, you might not see your problem with God as being that profound. You'll hear, hear people say this from time to time. I, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, I haven't committed you know, no major sins. Well, what you should do is uh, discern your problem with God by the fact of your total depravity which has nothing to do with your sin list. It has everything to do with how you are, your condition before God, regardless of the number of sins or the kind of sins that you've committed. This first way of dealing with your problem with God by the sins that you have committed, what that does is it leads to comparing your sin list with other people. And that's exactly what the Pharisee did in the temple. He worked through his problem with God By his sin list, and he compared his sin list, and he also compared his righteous list with the publican. But if you compare, if you deal with your problem with God by your total depravity, well, what that does, it leads to a universal and mutual brokenness before Jehovah God. You have no standing before God that's any different from anyone else. Question number three, what traces of self-righteousness remain in you? Do you discern this by those you're, you you can discern this, I'm sorry, you can discern this by those you're angry with or those with whom you compare yourself. Now on this idea of comparing, some people compare themselves with others by looking down on them like the Pharisee in the temple, but then other people, they compare themselves by feeling inferior to certain people where they're looking up to people. Both of those are theologically whacked because there is no one better than you and there's no one worse than you. Either perspective, whether you're looking down on people or looking up to people and feeling inferior to people, both of those misses the transformative point of the gospel The transformative point of the gospel is, there is none righteous. Romans 3.10 and following says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you compare yourself by looking down on someone, you're missing the transformative point of the gospel. If you compare yourself to someone by looking up to them and feeling insecure or inferior, you're missing a transformative point of the gospel. Question number four. How do these gospel truths, the things that I'm sharing in this podcast, how do they transform your parenting? It is imperative that we see as parents that our children are little sinners, totally depraved you can attach this question that i just asked you about your parenting how about this how much does the self esteem movement hinder you from gospel centered parenting i was saying earlier that we become so soft we don't have to be harsh we don't have to be unkind we don't have to be blunt we don't have to we don't have to be mean spirited in how we communicate these truths in fact we shouldn't be But we must be clear, we must be direct, and one of the things that's happened in our culture because of the self-esteem movement over the past 50 years is that we do not like the Bible's clear declaration of who we are. Your children need to know who they are before God. The greater or the more profound they realize their fallenness before God will determine the kind of gratitude and affection, thanksgiving that they have to god and it's not based on the sins you committed it is based on the fact that you're totally broken totally depraved before god and you need his merciful intervention in your life if you want to read the podcast go to rickthomas.net the joy depleting problem of being reared in a christian home